Yeah, that's your winner winner chicken dinner. <laughs> <laughs> Please edit that out. <laughs> Hi, I'm Alan Hill, the nostalgic vagabond. I lived out of a backpack for many years during my 20s and some 30s. I'm less of a nomad these days. In this podcast series, I'm catching up with old friends, wonderful people I've met in the Traveller's Trek. And what better time is there to catch up, reminisce, and see how everyone is getting on in 2020? I hope you enjoy hearing about our journeys as much as we've enjoyed sharing. My guest on this episode is Chris Ascroft. Chris's passion for travel started young, with language excursions abroad during high school and early European odysseys. Through the years, he's been able to find a balance managing a work-travel lifestyle. Today I'm video calling Chris in his awesome home city, Montreal, in Canada. Chris, how you doing? Hey man, great, how are you? What's up? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty good. How's Montreal today? Montreal is cloudy. Uh, yeah, just, you know, normal. I mean, the weather finally has broken. We had, a, I think, our third heat spell of the summer, which is super unusual uh, for Montreal this time of year. We usually have, like, one the whole summer. The fact we've already had three is crazy. So uh, glad it's not, like, 40 degrees today. Yeah. <laughs> so it's the global warming impact in Montreal, too, I suppose. Yeah, unfortunately, yeah. Okay, Chris, well, welcome to the podcast, The Nostalgic Vagabond. I'm really pleased that you're on. Thanks for having me, man. It's so nice to see your mug. Here. <laughs> My ugly, bald mug. Not, nobody said ugly. <laughs> nobody said ugly. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, so uh, today we're going to just have a chat about all things travel. Awesome. I'm very curious to hear some of the stories you have, and I w- I'm keen for you to share sure. uh, some of your insights, some of your work experience, some of your uh, working abroad specifically, mm. and also working at home. So the first thing to get started is a lot of people, you know, when they're adults, they work, they save money, they spend their money on whatever they want. Some people buy things. They invest in houses. Some people have, you know, unique and random hobbies. Mm. You, you spend your savings on travel. I do, yes. <laughs> Every penny pretty much goes to traveling, <laughs> for better or for worse. Has it always been this way for you? Pretty much, yes. Yeah. Since I was 18, yeah. Almost every penny I've made, I've probably put towards traveling or paying off a trip. Yeah, sometimes I don't even have the money and I take trips. <laughs> <laughs> kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I'm half kidding. <laughs> so what are the main reasons why you spend your savings on travel? I mean, I, at first, you know, it's just been a snowball effect. Like at first, it was just for freedom, just to get away, to live by my own drum beats and, you know, kind of get away from everything I kind of like knew. And I, I don't know, like I have a really... I like learning on an incline. Uh, so I just found that like, you know, this, my surroundings here were not always so stimulating. And after my first trip, I realized that while wow, my learning curve when I'm on the road, is just like, it's amazing. So I just like being on the road just because I feel like I learn a lot and I push myself to learn a lot. And I just feel like a better person or a better version of myself when I'm on the road, when I'm traveling. And uh, yeah, that person is who I am today. So are you saying basically that when you're pushing yourself or throwing yourself outside your comfort zone that's where the incline in learning happens and that's where you relish the experience 
I, like, I wouldn't even say it's outside my comfort zone. The point is that I like being on the road so much, or I like traveling so much, is because I am in my comfort zone, and being learning at that kind of rapid pace is how I'm most comfortable living my life. If I'm not being stimulated, you know, I think a lot of people love just, like, their quiet, comfortable life, and... I mean, I, I'm starting to enjoy that a little more as I get older. But when I was in my 20s, forget about it. Uh, it was, you know, send me anywhere in the world. I'd rather be there than here. <laughs> you had um, that desire to just leave where you're at because your feet are so itchy. You just need to put them somewhere it's, else. It's really unbelievable. I remember, like, my first trip I took to Europe, I was hitchhiking to Toronto, like, the, the day after I got back. No way. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> like, it was just, like, insatiable. Yeah. <laughs> okay. This trip in Europe, was this your first place you traveled or was it sort of an intermediate place? So, I mean, I guess technically, obviously I traveled with my family when I was younger. And then my mom and dad, most of my mom though, she was really like, my mom's obsessed with England and all things British. And so when there was a school trip to England, my mom like insisted I go uh, in grade nine and then again in grade 11. <laughs> And it was really rare for, you know, kids to go on one of these trips, let alone two. That was really, like, my mom's kind of, like, idea to go. And, you know, she'd love traveling. I think she really wanted me to like it as well. Guess what? It worked. <laughs> Is she happy to hear of your stories when you come back and share all your adventures? Uh, yes and no. I mean, I think we have different kind of, like, ideas or visions of travel. My mom was, you know, loved traveling. I think she's been to Europe, like, 25 times. And it was mostly with groups... And on, you know, sometimes cruises and stuff. So we travel differently. I don't think she's ever backpacked. Backpacking has been kind of like my, my MO. And kind of like the world I discovered traveling. And that's kind of like my niche within the travel world. It's definitely been backpacking. Yeah, so a bit different to the organized European tours that uh, your mother perhaps went on. Hmm. Sure. I want to take you back to 2010, Chris. Yes. In May. What a year. <laughs> because it was better than 2020 <laughs> i agree 100 percent. and the reason for that is because i was in montreal in may of 2010 and uh, i met you and you were working at the hostel there as an activities coordinator to be honest i've got a lot of uh, hostels that i've stayed in over the years i have my top three north american list of hostels and the hostel you were working at is in that top three Watch what you say. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> One of the reasons why I chose my top three hostels in North America was down to there being a resident activities coordinator who was able to bring together guests and, and travelers from all over the parts of the world who were staying at that time and taking them out and showcasing their city and their favorite establishments, a bit of history, a bit of nature, a bit of culture. Absolutely. And that was what your employment was mm. while you were there. So can you tell me a little bit about what it was like working in the hostel there in Montreal and um, the job specifically as an activities coordinator? Okay. Uh, well, I mean, working at any hostel, I'm sure, is a hoot and a holler. Uh, working at the hostel in Montreal was... I guess it exceeded everything I ever expected of a hostel job. It was a fantastic experience. Uh, I wouldn't trade it for anything. I, you know, I started there just doing random pub crawls my first summer, and that kind of evolved into more active, or actually more pub crawls. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, and then more activities, you know. I got to balance out the um, the bad with the good. The yeah, so usually it was like, 
pub crawl followed by bike tour, you know, the old yin and the yang. <laughs> and, uh, you know, kept me, it's kept me alive. I'm sure of that. It was just pub crawls. Woo. Oh boy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah, and then I took on kind of, uh, like, I guess an administrative role as the, as a program coordinator. Uh, so kind of like developing kind of like activities, developing, um, I guess, kind of like events at the hostel for our guests. So we had about, I forget how many beds exactly, but. It was pretty large. Hundreds. Yeah. Maybe like 250. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, organizing activities for a, a group that big is a lot of fun. And so we, you know, we had a, a, a bar and a like social area in the basement. So organizing kind of like activities there. Yeah, lots of fun. So can we talk about the different types of activities we had or? Yeah, let's go for it. So I remember Monday was bike tour. Is that right? Yeah, Monday. So yeah, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. I think we had it three times a week during the high season, mm-hmm. which is like loads of fun. And like Montreal is such a bikeable city. And uh, we had a great connection with uh, one of the bike shops in old Montreal. And so it's, it's really your one-stop shop of all the things you, you, you probably couldn't do on foot. So if you combine that bike tour in Montreal with, you know, some, some walking, like you can see everything. Yeah. Like you can bike around the Formula One track, uh, biking along the canal, biking to the, one of the markets, picnicking by the canal. That's a great bike tour. Yeah, I remember. It was really fun that day. I really wanted to bike around the Formula One track. Uh, did we not? No, we did. It was great. Oh, okay, great. <laughs> yeah, I think we did. We went down Atwater. Is it Atwater Canal? Yes, absolutely. Great memory. And there's a market down yeah, there. Yeah, the Atwater Market. Great. Yeah, yeah it was nice. Yeah, I was asking about the, the F1 track because sometimes it is closed, especially in the summer, because, you know, we do host the F1. And so you can't be, like, biking along the track with, uh, you know, Lewis Hamilton zooming by. That would be dangerous. <laughs> yeah, I, I was there, I think, just a few weeks before it was due, because I remember the stands basically being constructed, and they're not a permanent fixture, are they? No, they, they go up and they go down. So it must have been a month before or something like that. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad it wasn't closed, because that was one of my highlights, to be fair. Yeah, sure. I think it's a highlight for anybody. Loads of fun. Chris, can I ask you what your favorite part of that job as an activities coordinator was? I mean, anytime you're paid to drink beer and bike, <laughs> it's like, I mean, there's, there's, there's no, there was no caveats, really. You just did the best part. I mean, it was all good. Hmm. I mean, meeting people from all over the world all the time, uh, getting contacts all over the world. The vacations, I mean, I was, they were very, because it was a hostel, they were very understanding, like, if I wanted to travel. Uh, so, you know, I, I left for Southeast Asia for almost three months and someone took over for me and it was just great like that. You know, I, I left for, um, you know, Central America for a month and a, and a bit. Uh, they were very lenient. And even after my first summer, I had, uh, actually quit that job and moved to Europe for, uh, six months to, to France. And I was able to come back the next summer after that, which was, which was amazing. Yeah. It's not every job that is so flexible with you having no. such extravagant holiday time and then coming strapped back into the same position. Yeah, I've said it once and I'll say it again. It was the perfect student job. I can't think of anything better, to be honest. I was just thinking about this just before I called you, Chris, and I've been on hmm. many tours around different cities in the world, and some have been through hostels that have been through the activities coordinator and some have been through third party companies like a Sandemans or an equivalent. And often you find that other travelers are taking you on these walking tours or these, uh, uh, you know, um, bike tours or whatnot. They're often not from the city that they're showcasing. Totally. 
I was wondering, do you think there is something special in somebody who is born and raised in a city and then showing off their city to the people who come to visit? Yes and no. So I think that answer can go two ways. I mean, you know, I know people from Montreal who can't name, you know, some of the famous landmarks that we have who don't know the history. So if you're going to hire someone simply because they're from a place, you know, you better be sure that they're darn knowledgeable about that place. But yeah, I mean, there's, you know, there's imports in Montreal who have, you know, been here for maybe not that long, a couple of years, and they know Montreal better than some of my friends who grew up here do. So I don't think you need to be from a city, but you need to be passionate about the city. Passionate is the key. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. And if you can find a local who is passionate about the city, wow. <laughs> that's the combination. Yeah, that's your winner, winner, chicken dinner. <laughs> <laughs> that should be on your resume, Chris. Please edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh oh nice one <laughs> so i remember we had a conversation over of course a pitcher of beer uh one of the days i was in montreal you were talking about the types of guests that you've seen come through the hostel and obviously you've seen probably thousands i imagine in your time you was you were working there do you have any contributing factors or dis let's say distinguishing attributes of guests that you find super appealing to be hanging out in a hostel and perhaps some guests that you find have attributes that are kind of grating and, and more difficult to be around? Yeah, I mean, I think, we, I think I've been lucky. I think most people, you know, fall in that category of like easygoing. It's only like a, real, like a few that really stand out as just being like, oh my gosh. <laughs> Especially like if you're working, like doing activities and tours, it's the people that really want to know everything you're going to do before you're going to do it. And it's like, hey, man, like, you know, it's a surprise. Come on, can't you wait? <laughs> or the people that have like a million questions. And I'll be honest, like, sometimes like I would make up stuff because, you know, I remember just this one guy would be like, how, uh, how tall is that bridge over there? And I'm like, this, that, that, is, a, that is a very specific question. Uh, I don't know exactly. Yeah, but probably around, I don't remember what I said. Or, um, you know, what is the significance of that, like, statue over there? And I'm like, oh, well, you know, uh, you know, I, I'm pretty sure it's just decorative. I don't know the inherent meaning of it. But, uh, you know, maybe we can Google it. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, those people are very few and far between. Yeah. But for the most part, people are lovely. Especially because you, you feel that they're relaxed. They put their faith in you as a tour guide. They know, you know, you're the best person for the job. So they put your, their trust into you. And that's a really nice feeling. Yeah, to show people around and just have them kind of enjoy what you put in front of them or not put in front of them, but take them to see. Did you have a, a favorite season? Did you enjoy working in the summer season or the winter season or, or the in-between? Yeah, good question. I think I like the fall the best. I mean, fall's always my favorite season. I just, you know, the, the cool weather, back to school feeling is really nice. Like back to school, the hostel is an exciting time. Like those first couple of weeks of September, really, really fun. Because you don't have all the crowds from summer. Uh, summer crowds are, and as much as I love festivals, like they hinder a lot of, sorry, not hinder, but like, for example, the bike tour, they hinder the bike tour because, you know, we can't go around the F1 track. So I found like the activities or especially the bike tour were a lot more fluid 
yeah, the season was a lot better in the fall. And the groups were smaller as well. Because leading a, gr- a bike tour of like 25 people is more of a challenge than it is Enjoyable. like a fun activity. <laughs> yeah, I can totally appreciate that because I imagine you're just conscious of people's safety a lot with a huge group. It's like losing people. <laughs> like going through lights, like around the Atwater Market, there's a few lights. And just like getting massive groups through those lights. So we actually had to cut off the bike tours to 20 people because uh, it was just too much. It was just too slow going. It was just, it wasn't enjoyable for everybody if it was like too big of a group. Did you find that the type of travelers coming through at various seasons were of a different pedigree? Yeah, absolutely. Summer was very much like a lot more vacationers for sure. And then like the in-between seasons, maybe people were staying a little longer, enjoying things a bit more. So I like, and those types of people are, are the most interesting for me. The slow travelers. I really like those kind of tra- travelers. And because they're slow travelers, like you get to know them a lot more. And they, you know, they'll come on the bike tour. Then you'll see them on the pub crawl. Then you'll, you'll see them on the Mount Royal walking tour. Uh, so you really get to know them, you know, because they're smaller groups and you have more time with them. A lot more face time to get to know them. And I would say a lot of those people ended up becoming my friends. Mm. And w- what was the hostel like in the winter? Sorry, yeah, I was going to add winter is a completely different ball game. So, you know, we run at about 50% capacity. If, like, the in-between shoulder seasons are slow travelers, the winter is, like, you know, slow to a standstill travelers. Like, people staying months at a time. And people who stay months at a time, bless them, there's been some great ones. But there's also kind of, like, the ones that, pardon me, you used that uh, word grading earlier. Yeah. Yeah, you know, the ones that are just kind of like hanging out at the front desk all the time. Um, <laughs> they get a little too comfortable, if you know what I mean. Kind of end up living at the hostel. Yeah, yeah, totally. So, you know, the hostel is supposed to be a place to, a place to stay. Uh, it's supposed to be like, I don't want to like define what a hostel is, but I mean, there is a specific definition. And it's, you know, it's supposed to be like a, a transition place. You know, you stay there for a little while and then you go somewhere else. Uh, it's very much akin to backpacking. Yeah. But if you're living somewhere, it's not really backpacking anymore. Yeah, I, I've actually lived in a hostel, Chris. Uh, not in Montreal, but in, in another city. I know, in, in Toronto, right? Yeah, and I, I know yeah. exactly what you mean. And the, the interesting thing that I found, and I really, really hated it, was this was in a winter season. So you're completely correct in the type of year or the, mm. the, the time of year when this is potentially going to happen and canadian winters are freaking cold and it's almost like the country hibernates to a degree compared to the summertime i stayed in a hostel in toronto and like you said i was living there and it wasn't strictly by choice it was just the fact that i was trying to find my feet and this was the most convenient way of doing it at that time but what i really really didn't like was that there were a lot of other people who were doing the same thing they were in a sense resident at this hostel and you would still get a few travelers who would come through for a weekend or the week and they were passing through and they were having their backpacking adventure. And I hated the fact that, let's say, the residents or the, the, the long stayers were so cliquey and they weren't welcoming to the people who were just passing through. They wouldn't even talk to them. They'd shun them. Right. And I was like, what is going on here? I don't want to be involved in this. I used to try and, you know, open the group up. And I didn't want to be of the clique, even though I was physically there. I tried my best to bring in the passes through type people and um, make it like it should be. And as it would typically be in a a mid-season or summer season where everybody's passing through and not resident. Is that the kind of thing you had in Montreal sometimes? It can get very cliquey. 
but I sympathize with the people that are cliquey because the thing is like, you know, having, you know, worked at a hostel for so long, the whole like, how are you, where are you from, you know, spiel is, is exhausting. And I quite like it, but there are times where I just feel like, oh my God, it's exhausting. So if you don't have that kind of like personality for it, I can totally understand. But also that's really like intelligent, emotionally intelligent of you to like want to bring in these people and kind of like consider their feelings. That's really nice. Um, so I, I applaud you for doing that. And I wish more people would do that. Yeah. You know, to kind of like, you know, extend that olive branch to kind of like bridge those two worlds in the hostel. The hostel is a better place for it, you know, but it doesn't mean you have to talk to everybody, but it does mean like that it is a hostel at the end of the day and that, you know, people are doing different things, but why can't they do them together sometimes? And just acknowledge each other and, and chat about it. Absolutely. Over a pint. Totally. Yeah. I think though, Chris, I did learn a lot from you as an activities coordinator and how you can be a friendly, smiling, approachable person. You don't have to necessarily be employed at a hostel, but you can just be there and meet people organically and, and welcome them into or whatever activity you're doing that day or that weekend. Absolutely. So Chris, do you have any favorite guests or least favorite guests? You don't have to name any names, but maybe have you got any stories about uh, some people you've encountered over your time at the hostel? Yeah, I mean, obviously, like, favorite guests are, you know, the people I still keep in contact with um, 10 years later, like, wink, wink, you know. So I'm moving to Taipei in a few weeks, and there's been a girl that I've been chatting with for almost, I guess, since 2010 as well. And, uh, you know, I haven't seen her since the hostel, but we chat regularly. Uh, I'm more so lately because I'm moving there. So, you know, all these people that I've kept in contact with over all these years are my favorite guests because they're my friends now. They're part of my post-hostel life. Uh, I mean, they were part of my post-hostel life even before I left the hostel because I knew that they were going to be part of my life going forward after the hostel. And least favorite guests? Um, <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I've had a few run-ins here and there, you know. <laughs> I got head-butted once. <laughs> no way. Yeah, I like. Can I talk about this stuff on? Yeah, go for it. I mean, yeah, don't name names specifically, but yeah, tell us the story, yeah. Chris. <laughs> I he was this tiny. I think he was. He might have been Welsh or English. He was just this, this and you know, small little guy, but like an adult, obviously, like an adult small man okay. <laughs> with a massive chip on his shoulder. I think I like you know we were having pints and I made a like a joke and then he just headbutted me. <laughs> <laughs> Could he reach you? He hit, he hit me right in the throat. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's ridiculous. And it didn't hurt, but it was just kind of like wow, I you know that was that just happened. Yeah, interesting, bizarre. But I uh, I sobered up really quickly after that. <laughs> <laughs> So, Chris, moving on from there, I was wondering, you've done obviously quite a lot of solo travel. Have you done much travel with another person or in a team or in a group? My first trips were, I, so my first trip, my Euro trip, <laughs> was, with, uh, was with a friend. Uh, she was German. And that was like a month kind of like, you know, just, you know, hitting, I think I was like 18 or 19, just hitting like the, the big cities in Europe. Yeah. Uh, my first real independent trip so i wasn't with a group or just say my first backpacking trip and since then has basically been on my own but not like always like on my own 
but because I've made so many connections with the hostel or just like, you know, being a teacher traveling internationally or working internationally, I've made connections kind of everywhere. So it is technically getting on the plane by myself, but then visiting so-and-so in that city, visiting so-and-so in that city. My first trip with my friend was before I started working in the hostel. My trip after I worked at the hostel, the first my first stint was radically different because I was alone, but I was visiting people in every city. Like I saw people in Paris. Uh, I saw a friend in uh, the outskirts of Amsterdam. I saw a friend in the outskirts of Zurich. So I was staying in all these different places a long way through connections I'd met, I'd made at the hostel. That's brilliant. I love traveling that way, actually. Like it's actually my favorite way to travel. Because I like the independence of being on my own, but obviously I love the social aspect of it as well. It's really like the best of both worlds. Yeah, it's a really nice combination of having the complete freedom to make your own decisions and do whatever you want, whenever you want. But always having a friendly companion at some point and linking up with them along the journey. So you don't really have that continuous solitude, which can sometimes get a bit lonely. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I remember one trip that I had like that where I was very lonely was, um, yeah, the first trip I took outside of Europe. And I went to Central America. And obviously, like, I didn't know anybody in Central America. And I found meeting people very hard. I was, you know, by myself and I didn't know anybody there. So it was a tough trip. And I found like a lot of the activities I wanted to do were, were geared towards groups. And so if there was one person sign up, it was like this price. And then prices went down as more people signed up. But yeah couldn't find anybody yeah so i, I want to do all these jungle treks and all these adventure activities but they were like you know 350 us dollars for three days if i was by myself and half the price if i had a friend yeah which i didn't <laughs> did you end up finding somebody to go along with or did you end up going on your own and paying the bill or did you did you write it off I didn't do any of that yeah. stuff it was a it was kind of a bummer of a trip like i always hold that trip as kind of like my my low point in traveling mm. I, I was in a rut as well. Like, I was so sick of the whole, oh, like, where are you from, blah, blah, blah. And, um, no, it was, there was not a lot of solo travelers, I, I have to say, in, in Central America at that time, especially in Costa Rica. It was a lot of couples and a lot of, like, friends traveling as a group, like, vacationing, like, on a golf trip. <laughs> no, really, like, for real. Wow. Or people doing, like, volunteer work. And then after that, just getting loaded. <laughs> Like, you know, like, like, oh, we're, we're going to like plant some trees in the jungle for a week. Yeah. And, uh, you're like, oh, okay, cool. Like, can't locals do that? <laughs> I don't know, man. <laughs> what time of year was this, Chris? That was in the, let's say like, oh, I remember, dude, it was in the, in the spring. Okay. Because, and I'll always remember this. I came back like at the end of April, I think like April 28th or 29th, to a massive snowstorm. In Montreal. A massive snowstorm. Yeah. It was like, dude, like 40 centimeters of snow. Massive. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Montreal, it can be strange with the type of weather systems that pass through there. This year, this year was nuts, dude. At the beginning of May, we got, I think it was May 3rd, we had snow. <laughs> we had our first heat wave two or three weeks later. Unbelievable. The extremes and, yeah. and how quickly they go from one to the other in such short time. No, it's unbelievable. Wow. You've been to a bunch of places, Chris. Uh, you've, you've mentioned a few already, a few continents you've touched and uh, a few countries you've passed through. Do you have a, a top three or can you, can you think of not necessarily top three countries, but maybe top three destinations? It's like asking someone to like pick their favorite children. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I'll do it. <laughs> Yes, please. 
Yes. I mean, I I have some biases for sure. Right. Um, and I think you'll be surprised by a couple. Okay. So obviously, obviously, Korea is like dear to my heart because I spent like a number of years there, like living and working there. So being able to see Korea, so Korea is not a tourist destination. Like people go to Seoul and see Seoul as a tourist destination, but the rest of Korea is, I think, for most backpackers or most travelers, relatively undiscovered. So being able to kind of like be there and you know joining local hiking groups and seeing all the nooks and crannies of a country that is kind of undiscovered to most people. Uh, or at least parts of it that are undiscovered to most people is really special. That for me was one of the you know living there and seeing those places very unique. And I felt very special to be to see these places. Korea top of my list, obviously. Um, <laughs> also on my list, Mexico. Okay. Are you not surprised by that? Uh, no. Why would I be surprised? <laughs> I don't because it's so so close to Canada. Like it's you know it's like a you know four hour flight away. Yeah, but the the culture is quite different to Canada. Absolutely. If there's a, a nicer people on earth, I haven't met them yet. Wow. Mexican people are the the friendliest, nicest, most genuine people I've ever met, and they will forever have a, a you know an important place in my heart. And they've been so welcoming, and the food's amazing. There's lots to see. Uh, it's very convenient to travel around. It's just a great culture. Like if you look at kind of like cultures that export themselves very well, uh, Mexico's definitely at the top of that list. Who hasn't had a taco in the world? <laughs> I agree. And your your third one. So I was thinking about this, and it's a tie. Really? But I have. I, well, they're very similar countries, and I like them for similar reasons. But I would give the slight edge to New Zealand for the natural, because I've I've seen more of the natural beauty in that country. So New Zealand, wow, fantastic destination. The natural wonders in that country are just breathtaking. And they have a lot of great hiking and and, uh, great hiking trails. So there's things called the Great Walks. And uh, it's just amazing. You hike and then you camp or you you pay to sleep in a hut. Uh, It's all very affordable. And uh, those experiences. And you get to see, like, the best that they have to offer on those trails. So definitely New Zealand for that reason. Just how accessible the nature is and how accessible the natural landmarks are. But, you know, kind of tied with that would be Argentina, because Argentina is also very beautiful. The only thing about Argentina is that I haven't seen as much of it as I would have liked. Like, I was there during the winter, so I saw parts of Patagonia, but really the most uh, northern parts of Patagonia. So I would have to go all the way down to Ushuaia and do the Torres del Paine National Park and uh, El Tierro del Fuego, which means the land of fire, to really bump it ahead of New Zealand. Um, but until then, it's kind of like New Zealand takes the uh, the place in that one-on-one duel. Duel, yes. So you've got South Korea, Mexico, and then New Zealand slash Argentina in that uh, arrangement. Yes. Hmm. They're quite spread across the world. If you can say three corners, but you can't really because <laughs> it's a globe. For sure. Being Canadian, I was curious how often you encounter other Canadians on the Traveller's Beat and how do you interact or react with them when you bump into them? Yeah, so it depends where you go. If you go to Australia, you'll meet tons of Canadians, right? No doubt. If you go to a lot of these English-speaking countries, or you know, if you go to Thailand, you'll meet a lot of Canadians, but some places you meet far fewer for sure. I like meeting Canadians, but it's not a... I'm not like, ooh, 
wow, you're Canadian. Like, it's so cool. Because being from Quebec or Montreal, you know, Montreal's a little, you know, a little micro nation, if you will. Yeah. You know, so in Montreal, like, I don't think we feel super duper Canadian. Like, not like someone from Timmins, Ontario would. Like, I feel there is a distinct culture and, uh, and society. And then even, you know, even if I drive an hour outside Montreal, like, you know, and go to, like, the really French parts of Quebec, uh, it's, you know, Montreal is, like, my people. So when I meet a Montrealer yeah. abroad, it is like, whoa, you're from Montreal. And then we can reminisce about, you know, all the things we love to do and eat and drink here. But a Canadian, per se, is just too vague for me to really, like, get excited about. For the listeners who perhaps aren't completely aware of, obviously, the rich diversity of Canada as a nation, can you just give a brief... Uh, lowdown on how it changes culturally and also ge- geographically from west to east sure i mean i mean west is you know the best coast as they say <laughs> the left coast yeah it's, it's it's absolutely stunning naturally uh very beautiful i've never been to victoria but i hear that's nice vancouver obviously is at the doorstep of the mountains as you continue you have uh, alberta which is you know uh more mountains and then you have calgary Edmonton, which are cities I, I've been to Calgary for like a day. I've never been to Edmonton. I can't speak too much to it, but uh, it's mountainous. And I think it's just really mm. flat and you get the prairies and, you know, Manitoba is like the quintessential prairie province. No, that's not true. It's Saskatchewan. And I guess parts of Manitoba. Manitoba has lots of lakes. If you look at a, a map of Manitoba, there's like thousands, if not tens of thousands of lakes. It's pretty amazing. And then Ontario is, uh, I guess, our most populous province. Uh, and that uh, Ontario and Quebec, which is, you know, historically known as uh, Upper Canada or Lower Canada? I forget. Uh, edit that part out. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. Uh, <laughs> and, I mean, that's kind of like, you know, the uh, the quote-unquote uh, breadbasket of, of Canada. It's where most of our people live. Uh, we have the highest density of, you know, population. Two of the three biggest cities in the country are within a few hours of each other. Ottawa's equidistant to Montreal and uh, and Toronto. So that's where most of our people live. Quebec is French-speaking, I should note, whereas the rest of Canada on the west is English-speaking. Uh, so it's French-speaking because it was colonized by France in the, uh, you know, the 1500s. 1534? Yeah, it was Jacques Cartier's first travel, first, first trip to Montreal. And then East of Quebec, you have a province called New Brunswick. It's our only bilingual province or officially bilingual province in Canada. And then as you continue east, you have the Maritimes. The Maritimes, uh, the smallest being uh, Prince Edward Island and uh, Newfoundland and uh, Nova Scotia. Yeah. And those are uh, characterized by their... uh, by their maritimeness, their proximity to the sea, and that culture that kind of comes from the sea. Yeah, and they're, again, English-speaking, aren't they? But sometimes they have a bit of an Irish twang, I've heard. I, I'd say it's more Scottish. Okay. Like, especially, like, Nova Scotia, Newfoundland. But don't forget, there's enclaves of French uh, French populations there. Okay. The, the Acadian are kind of, uh, are peppered across that, like, landscape. Mm. Yeah, so if you went from west to east, it would take you a bloody long time, but you'd also see quite a few different types of landscapes and, and pass through many different cities of Absolutely. huge diversity and culture. It's like New Zealand, except like way bigger. <laughs> and let's not forget, like, you know, if you go north, you know, we have three territories as well. People often overlook them. And I'm ashamed to say I've never been to them, and I'd really like to go sometime. Yukon and Nunavut. 
Northwest Territories. And... Pretty cold in the wintertime, though, eh? Yeah, mate. <laughs> Obviously, there's many different forms of travel that you can utilize. Car, bus, train, plane, ship, helicopter even. Mm. Uh, do you have a preferred way, or does it depend on where you are and what you want to do? Yeah, I'm going to rule out helicopter right from the get-go. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I love trains. Trains are so much fun. Buses are the worst. <laughs> I mean, they're necessary. I mean, they're, they're usually the cheapest way to go. But buses are uncomfortable, man. Yeah. There's some bus rides that are just, like, brutal. Like, I, I think I took a 24-hour bus ride to get from uh, Vietnam to Laos. Uh, it was supposed to take eight hours. <laughs> it was characterized by the Irish girl next to me screaming pretty much the whole time because we were going around these rocky mountains. And, like, if you look down, like, it was just straight down. And just the shrieks kept me up. She was terrified. Eh? Terrified. I was kind of scared too. And dude, the craziest thing, it was the same bus driver the whole time. <gasps> and we stopped here and there for like substantial breaks because he needed a rest. And yeah, we were sold actually. We were ups upsold <laughs> on this package. We were supposed to take the three-day boat, the slow boat to get to where we were going in, in Laos. Sorry, I'm lying. It's from, it was from Thailand to Laos, not Laos to Thailand. After that experience, I flew from Laos <laughs> to Vietnam. I was like, they're like, it's a 24-hour bus ride, or you can fly there in 50 minutes. I was like, <laughs> sold. <laughs> but that, that bus ride is brutal. So I don't love bus rides, but they are a necessary evil because it is sometimes the most convenient way or the only way to get around. Hmm. Flying for you know long-haul distances, obviously. And then boat. Boats are brutal as well. I mean, I guess a slow boat is kind of okay, but, you know, it is just that slow. But, you know, those fast boats, like a hydrofoil. I took a hydrofoil to get to uh, around the islands in Thailand, like specifically to get to Koh Banyang. They're, uh, pardon my French, they're puke fests. <laughs> they are, like, they, they are, the waves are super choppy. You're going up and then crashing down, going up and then crashing down. And it was like that for four hours. And so, you know, people started puking after 20 minutes and it didn't stop till we got there. <laughs> and I felt so sorry for the, the people working because they're just running around trying to accommodate. You know, they couldn't bring people puke bags fast enough. Wow. And then uh, this, this poor girl, like in the, in the row next to me, she was with her parents originally. And then one parent started feeling sick and like left, I guess, to be sick somewhere. And then the other parent left as well and left this like little kid by herself. And the little girl was just like, you know, she's going to about to puke. Sorry, is this gross? I guess so. You can, you can edit it out. But then, so, but then, so she did. And then the lady comes over to like take care of her. And the smell of it made her puke. <laughs> it, was, it was just like... And I have a pretty strong stomach. I don't, you know, I don't get sick very often, but I was like pretty close. But, you know, you were close. I was wow. good. I was good. I really focused on the movie that I was playing. And uh, it was the movie called Step It Up and uh, or something like that. Step Up, that dance one. It was a dance one, but they kind of like dance fight as well. Oh. Yeah. So I, I watched that movie pretty in intensely just to keep my mind off of what was going on around me. That's great, man. <laughs> yeah. So, Chris, I wanted to take us to a bit of the conversation, which I'm really intrigued. Working abroad, 
and you've done that quite a lot in your time. You've worked as an English teacher, right, in South Korea? Yeah. Can you just talk a little bit about what that job has meant to you and what you could say in recommending it to other people who perhaps want to live abroad and work and travel? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a career teacher, so, like, I studied, like, you know, I did my bachelor in education. But, you know, I, there's all types of teachers in Korea and in other countries in the world, I suppose. You don't need to have a background in education to go somewhere and want to immerse yourself in the culture and teach English or, I guess, another language if you wanted to, to pay the bills at the same time. It's a great way to see the world or, quote, unquote, have a gap year. But, yeah, it's, it's been, it's, I've made it my career, you know. Uh, and I just wrapped up a master's in second language education. So I'm very, you know, I, I went into it just kind of enjoying the experience, but I've kind of left with a career in it. So I'm taking that career to Taipei in a few weeks. Yeah, and you've got a contract there to teach English, I imagine. Yeah, it's to teach English, um, but teaching at a school, but teaching content as well. So not just English, but teaching science and English, social sciences and English, math and English. Yeah. Okay, so more of a career teacher type position rather than somebody passing through. Exactly. So, yeah, there's a distinction that it's not in a quote-unquote like cram school or uh, in Korea they're called hagwons. In Taiwan they're called bushibans. Other places they're called cram schools. Those kind of extracurricular ones that don't uh, rely on a whole lot of pedagogy but more on just kind of like having a foreigner there to teach the English. More conversational English skills. Not necessarily. Conversational is not that important in a lot of these countries. The most important thing is to get good grades on your exams, on your English exams specifically, because that's part of your final exams when you finish high school, and to get into a good university. And what university you go to dictates a lot of the jobs you're able to get thereafter. So being able to grade well uh, in English is more important than speaking English. My last school was really about speaking. It was a special school. It was a Reggio Emilia school. And so that was really about speaking. But, you know, my first job was more just about test taking. And what would you say makes a good English teacher? What are the skills and attributes and personality traits that you would recommend? Sure. I mean, fun and animated is really important. I mean, that's important for any teaching job, uh, especially if you're going to be teaching something that students might have difficulty with. Language learning can be... I mean, like, learning French here as a kid was a drag because it wasn't that fun. Uh, So I think, like, having that kind of, like, fun aspect or, you know, turning a lot of activities into games is really important to get kids excited about learning English. And also just kind of that cultural awareness that cultures learn differently or they have different approaches to education. For example, like, in Teachers College, we were taught about questioning and kind of extracting the answer you're looking for through perhaps different avenues of questions. But that didn't work in Korea. Like, I remember attempting that my first time. And the students, you know, as I was trying to get to that answer, asking different questions, uh, the students started to to shut down and kind of like like box in. And then I realized that the student didn't like having the attention on him, that, you know, he was losing face, if you will. And so, you know, I had to, 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 you know, backtrack or like back up and ease up. Not ease up because I wasn't... But I was just asking too many questions and there was too much attention on that student and that student did not, did not like it. Yeah, didn't respond to it in the same way. Absolutely. So being sensitive to the culture in which you're in and adjusting your culture 
to fit in with theirs is something that is necessary when teaching abroad. Absolutely. With your choice to go to Taiwan and teach, what were the things that drew you to get a job teaching there? Was it the fact that it's a huge bustling city or its location in the world or the types of cuisine and, and culture you can experience there? Uh, I would say all of the above. So I've actually been to Taiwan before. I went to, I stopped in Taiwan for about 10 days on my way back from Korea uh, after my last contract there. So I just, you know, it's a lovely place, obviously great food, uh, lots of natural landscape because, you know, it's an island. There's people live all around the island. The whole middle of the island is all parks and mountains. People don't think of Taiwan as this beautiful natural destination, but it absolutely is. So in a similar way, you enjoyed South Korea because of the proximity you were to wonderful landscapes and mountains. You can actually appreciate similar types of nature and landscape. Similar, um, but the mountains in Korea are like are babies compared to the mountains in Taiwan. Uh, I think the biggest mountain in Korea is like 2,000 meters. Yeah, and that's on, that's on the island of Jeju, which is south of the mainland. But on the mainland, I think the tallest is like maybe like 1,800 meters, which is not that big. Whereas like, I think some of these mountains here, like like Yushan, is probably double that, to be honest. And a lot of these mountains are, uh, are high altitude climbs, where you probably need to be careful of like altitude sickness, whereas there's no place like that in Korea. So it's going to be another level for you on your hiking expeditions. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> What's cool about those those higher places is they're they're not as hot. Yes. So t- Taiwan is tropical, right? So uh, hiking in Taiwan at like you know terrestrial level would be oh dude probably impossible. We're talking about like over forty degrees, ninety five percent humidity, not the greatest conditions to hike. But if you can get drive up to like a higher place and start from there, you're looking at cooler temperatures. And just better climbing, uh, climbing climate. Yeah, try to say that five times. Climbing climate. <laughs> Fast five. Five quick fire questions require five quick fire answers. My guests must answer five random questions about traveling without thinking too much. Okay, so we've got five questions here. Each question just has two options. Choose an option. Quick fire. Are you ready for the fast five? Yes. Okay. Question number one, top or bottom? Question number two, full or empty? Oh. Question number three, bus or train? Train. (laughs) Number four. Can't emphasize that enough. (laughs) (laughs) Question number four, book or Kindle? Book. Question number five, more or less? Always more. (laughs) Unless it's unless it's like climate change, then less. (laughs) Brilliant. Fast five. You're moving away to Taipei and Taiwan very soon. And I was curious, when you're packing your bags, what will be the first thing that you put in? Ah, that's tough. There's so many things that I want to bring, but are just not pragmatic. When I was in Korea, like I always joke, I'd love to have four beers with me, (laughs) you know, to to, to like, you know, good old Montreal beers, like a nice like Zerzusiel beer and have four of them and celebrate each kind of like uh, milestone, you know of my contract because these contracts are a year long, but carrying four beers is heavy and not super pragmatic. I did it once (laughs) uh, and never again. Like I just need to bring more pragmatic things. So Korea, like for example, like you can't buy deodorant in Korea or you can't find your favorite deodorant. I think they sell it now, but five years ago, you couldn't find deodorant for the life of you. Uh, So you had to bring a year supply worth of deodorant. Uh, when When I'm packing my bags to move somewhere, I am taking the most pragmatic things possible. I'm bringing clothes my size. 
I'm bringing deodorant, uh, like I told you. Uh, practical things. Yeah. I was in Korea last uh, October. Yeah. September, September it was. And mm -hmm. I actually encountered this exact problem. I ran out of deodorant. I was in Gyeongju. Gyeongju, uh, the, the museum without walls. Yeah, with all the huge burial mounds everywhere. Yeah, mm -hmm. from the Shila dynasty. Exactly. I ran out of deodorant and I thought, I've got another week or so on this trip. I can't really go without deodorant. So it was about evening time and the sun was slowly going down and I thought, right, this place, you know, is fairly commercial. There's a bunch of shops I've seen in the streets and, you know, there's markets and things. All right, I'll be able to find like a chemist or some kind of cosmetics store or whatever. And I went in, in store, out store, in store, out store. I went to about five different places. I couldn't find any deodorant. And then I saw this one place which was really bright and it looked exactly like what we have in Britain, which is a super drug, which is like a cheap cosmetic store and they sell everything. And I thought, oh, yes, this is going to be the place. So I go in. I'm in there for ages, up and down the floors looking for deodorant. And I had everything but. I was going back towards the counters and I saw personal care type stuff. They had deodorant and they had at least a ticket for deodorant, but they only had one deodorant left okay it looks kind of weird but maybe it's just korean they have different branding or different color schemes or whatever so i bought this deodorant later on i realized it was women's deodorant hey you gotta do what you gotta do man <laughs> <laughs> you probably smelled like a lilac that whole week good for you yeah i smelled beautiful for the rest of the the time i was there oh i'm getting i'm getting whiffs of it now wow <laughs> <laughs> well that's good deodorant like so when you do find it in korea it's not like a stick deodorant you know your mm -hmm. speed stick or your mm -hmm. your old spice like that forget about it and even five years ago it was impossible to find anything pretty much if you go to like watson's which is like one of the big stores over there you can get like a small rolling deodorant and that's about it yeah rolling deodorants is what i'm used to because we have that in australia as, as well as a spray and those stick deodorants is a more north american thing i've discovered Really? Oh, I can't live without my stick deodorant. Yeah. We could continue talking about deodorant or... <laughs> we could continue talking about something else. So uh, what I want to talk about is with all this COVID-19 business going on right now, Yeah. are you planning future trips or are you just waiting it out and going to see what happens? First and foremost, I'll go to Taiwan, do my quarantine. Uh, and then as soon as my quarantine's over, I'm going to be to a new, like a new old country. I've been there before but I only scratched the surface. So I'm excited as all hell to discover all the nooks and crannies of that beautiful country. So I will be traveling, but I will be living and working there. But I will be traveling. Within the boundaries of Taiwan. With, within Taiwan, yeah. And I'm hoping that, you know, in the next year, like I have a six-week vacation next summer, and I would love to travel. I don't know if I'll be able to, to be honest. Uh, I know that the case right now for people... In Korea, they're basically stuck. Either they go home or they're stuck in Korea. Like, can't really travel many places right now. I guess, yeah. I mean, with the quarantines, it's really hindered a lot of stuff. And, you know, a lot of countries are becoming more and more uh, demanding in terms of having a negative COVID test just to get on the plane, which I think is great to, like, mitigate the spread of the virus. But uh, it does impede traveling for sure. Mm. But then again, like having, you know, open loosey-goosey borders is probably not the answer either. So I'm hoping we can travel, but I want to do it safely. Yeah. 
I, I was reading actually Dubai had kind of recently reopened to tourists in some capacity. I don't know if you've seen that, you know, Nas Daily video. And he was saying that it's his first trip uh, since the pandemic started. And that things are, are outlined. Tourists stand here and here. Uh, you know, they take your temperature everywhere you go. You hand sanitize. It's very cut and regulated to be the safest travel experience that you could possibly have. So what countries can do that? We'll see in the near future. Yeah. And I guess we'll just have to get used to the new regulations because that's just going to be part of life for the, the next few years. That's that's the, the new normal, man. Mm. And you can either be with those regulations and, you know, kind of live something of a normal life or we can go back to lockdown. Yeah. It's up to you. Yeah. <laughs> Not you, but like you. Yeah, I know what you mean, man. You people. <laughs> you, you listeners, listen up. You, you lot out there. <laughs> I've got one final question that I'd like to ask of you, and that is to do with advice. Yeah, I, I think with travel, this is a tough, it's like a loaded question, because obviously travel has been a, a huge part of my life, but also like in terms of career and stuff, it is, my obsession with traveling has not been the, I guess the healthiest, for, like I'm glad that I found something now that I can kind of have the best of both worlds, but um, like I'm not retiring at 60. There's no way, you know, I have friends who see my life as, you know, the uh, grass is greener. They have a house, they have significant investments and stuff. I guess it's just kind of like see what kind of personality you have, what you want out of life and travel accordingly. For example, my mom was very happy you know, working. She worked, she retired relatively young and she got to travel during her summers for her job. But I've seen people who, especially in like, countries like Thailand, people just traveling, but traveling like lost souls and not really having kind of like an end game. And so when traveling becomes, it is a lifestyle, it, it's hard to say, but I'm glad that I've kind of found like a middle ground where I can have that career and have that kind of future that I want, but not compromising the way I like to travel. So find that, that way to do that for yourself. Yeah, decide what you want and find how it can suit your desires and your lifestyle at the same time. I have another friend and she travels with work all the time. She, she actually works for the hostel, but like, you know, in, in the management part and uh, she travels all the time and she's always regretted. Like it's always the grass is greener. I'm telling you. So a piece of advice, the grass is not always greener. And she's always wanted to like live abroad or even as an exchange student, she never did that, but she travels all the time. She's in amazing trips. I told her the other day, like, no, like you should not regret anything. You have this amazing career that lets you travel. Yes, you haven't gone and lived somewhere for like a year or two, but you've made it work. Yeah, I think sometimes everybody, all of us can get caught up in comparing our experiences with other people. Brilliant. And that's not necessarily a good thing to do. Mm -hmm. what, what we need to do is to, to own our own experiences, yeah. especially when it comes to travel. Own our own unique travel experiences and to validate our own unique travel experiences. And to share with others, but not compare or be jealous or think that the grass is greener. Absolutely. Sage advice, my friend. <laughs> Thanks for listening to The Nostalgic Vagabond. My guest today has been Chris Ascroft. There are more episodes in this podcast series where you can hear different tales from other fellow travellers. Check them out anywhere you can grab good podcasts. And big ups to Tom Forfar for creating the soundtrack to the series. Don't forget, your journey is special. Own it. I've been Alan Hill. Until next time. And I can't imagine any
bus. Buses are like like any bus that advertises Wi-Fi is lying. <laughs> Train all the way.